This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Improving the lives of dogs across Canada and around the world is a hefty goal. But by talking about the lives of wild dogs, Dr. Valley fraser Salin is getting closer to reaching that goal every day. Dr. fraser Salin, who has worked with African wild dogs, dogs in Indigenous communities in Canada, and identifying how a One Health approach makes an impact, is breaking down misconceptions, providing resources, and creating community programs. All from an Instagram account, at the lives of wild dogs. While I'm a big fan of the account and want to tell you all about it, the best thing for you to do is head over to at the lives of wild dogs on Instagram while you listen to Dr. Fraser Salin here on Defender Radio discuss her journey to supporting people and dogs, how pet pantries can make an impact, what she hopes to achieve, and how a single television trainer introduced and perpetuated one of the biggest dog myths there is. So long before we get to uh, the incredible lives of wild dogs, we, we have to go through a bit of an adventure. Could you share a bit of that adventure, how you how yeah. you got to where you are? Yeah, I mean, it actually goes before that. Um, so it starts back in, I guess the first time I went to South Africa was in 2007. I was volunteering for kind of a wildlife organization and I just fell in love with Africa as many people do. And, um, I came back from that. Then the next year traveled throughout Africa a little bit more. And then after I came back from the three months that I spent uh, traveling through Africa, I started a master's in library studies, which, you know, is a little bizarre, but, um, going from, you know, traveling in Africa, going to do a master's in library studies. And mm -hmm. while I was Finishing up my master's, I got a, a four-month volunteer position in South Africa at the Southern African Wildlife College, which is just outside of the Kruger National Park. It's an amazing spot. Um, very, very beautiful. They do a lot of work around conservation, and they train a lot of folks in conservation. So I was there for supposed to be there for four months and stayed for a year and a half. And when I came back to Canada after that year and a half, basically living in the bush, <laughs> listening to lions roaring at night and, um, you know, watching cheetah on my lunch breaks, I am um, the geography program at the University of Guelph and my supervisor, Dr. Alice Havorka was um, amazing. She took me on as a student um, to study. She had a whole research project on the lives of animals in Botswana. So all of her students focused on different um, animals. So that included donkeys and cattle and elephants and African wild dogs, which is what I studied. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've studied, went on to do my PhD in geography, um, basically human animal relationships, human environment geography. And I was studying human African wild dog conflict and conservation in Botswana. So that was my PhD uh, focus. And um, after that, I did some postdoc studies in community health sciences at the University of Calgary. And that's where I really started digging into uh, dogs in Indigenous communities and access to veterinary care. So that's what really kind of got me on on the path to focusing on domestic dogs and, and um, just got really interested in dogs. They're kind of like this, you know, like creature that's like a very like 
very much a part of our lives yet mm-hmm. you know we kind of just tend to take that for granted i think um the fact that you know we share our spaces with dogs and there's you know the they're they've been domesticated for you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years um so that kind of like sparked my interest in in dogs and dog behavior and of course you know the work i was doing with indigenous communities there's a lot of dog bites and dog behavior and um issues up there so everything kind of melded together and um I got a Northern dog. I adopted a Northern dog and um, kind of went down this rabbit hole on dog training and uh, started this Instagram account, which was, you know, to advocate for humane dog training methods and, and kind of debunking, you know, the pack mentality and, and the pack leadership um, training methods that we know are super mainstream. Thanks to mm. Mr. Caesar Milan, <laughs> more generally speaking, but, um, we, it's very pervasive in the dog training world. And I just, you know, relied a lot on my, you know, PhD and learning about African wild dogs, which, you know, are very, very similar to wolf behavior as well. So they're often called the wolves of Africa. So I was able to really lean on, on my knowledge of African wild dog behavior. And then, um, also, you know, working with, you know, domestic dogs in northern communities where they are free roaming so you see a lot of like that behavior as well and just trying to you know debunk all of these myths around you know the fact that dogs are not wolves and they don't act like wolves and nor should they be trained as if you know we were wolves and they were wolves not that i'm saying that wolves should be trained the way that caesar milan trains dogs um you know there's a lot of wolves out there at sanctuaries that are trained you know with positive reinforcement and yep. clicker training so um we know we can train a, a you know a lot of wildlife that don't have that history of domestication um you know so why would we be training dogs that have this like you know long history of of cooperatively working with you know humans and being around humans for a long time so we have that bond and we have that capacity to train them without the use of you know aversive tools and aversive techniques so yeah yeah that's kind of how i I landed here it's a long long story but it's a little quirky but here we Mm -hmm. are (laughs) and it's where you've landed is wonderful the work you've done is outstanding too it's worth saying you you've done a lot of good for a lot of places and a lot of animals and people so that is very much uh, needing to be acknowledged as well, though we are talking about now. And I think what's interesting, and I'd like to start with the, the wolf concept, because this is something too, when I was introduced to dog training and everything, is it's in your face. Or at the time, it was very, if you look up dog training, if you go to a bookstore and look at dog training books, it was very heavily influenced by this alpha concept, uh, the yeah. the power, not power roles, the dominance roles and pinches yes. and touches yeah. and yanks and corrections. And in, in some ways, there is a logic to it uh, because you can get a result with that. Um, but I'm curious, sort of, you came into the dog training having seen wild dogs first. And having seen them so on the continent of Africa, in Ontario, in Manitoba communities, Manitoba, I think, right? Primarily? Yeah. So domestic dogs in Manitoba, um, a bit up in the West Territories. But I've, you know, I've seen, um, you know, free roaming dogs in in India. So I was able to see a lot of free roaming dogs there. Um, Africa has a ton of free roaming dogs. So a lot of, you know exposure to free roaming dogs even though i wasn't studying them but you know able to see how they how they live as well and um yeah 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 so a lot of exposure 
Yeah, the indigenous communities are are, are very interesting. There is an entire uh, um, colonialist causation, I think, behind where a lot of those issues may rise from. And it comes down to then it follows up with the lack of resources in terms of training, yeah. veterinary care, etc. Um, yeah. But I, I'm curious. So you, you've observed wild dogs all over the world in all these different places. And then you start getting into training and hearing these stories of, well, Dogs are like wolves, so we need to treat them like wolves. And this is how wolves do it, so this is how we should... It, it's the it's a simplification, but that is, I think, at the core, a lot of that messaging. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, yeah. as someone who had studied wild dogs, did you think, oh, yeah, they were behaving like wolves? Or did you have an immediate different sort of observation? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so African wild dogs are basically the wolves of Africa. So they're very, very similar in their like social structures, in their ecology. You know, they have, you know, they're one of the most endangered large carnivores in sub-Saharan Africa. They have, you know, they they work in packs, they hunt together, they, you know, there's a lot of um um very similar social structures and social behavior to to wolves. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to do a lot of like observation of wolves, but I've read a lot about wolves, um, you know, in the peer reviewed scholarship when I was doing my PhD around African wild dogs because they're so similar. Um, so, you know, when you think about, like when I think about the seeing African wild dogs in the wild, like, I'm not thinking like, oh, this is very similar to dogs. Yeah. Like they're just the behaviors, the the whole social structure is so different. I mean, dogs are not pack animals. They don't um tend to form these, you know, um packs of dogs that are related. There's no sort of um reproductive suppression from, you know, the quote unquote alpha male and female, which literally just means breeding pair. Um, There's no, um, you know, female dogs are promiscuous, so they will, you know, mate with several male dogs or several male dogs will mate with a female. So, you know, the male dog doesn't help with the, you know, raising the pups. So there's, there's no like sort of pack structure there. They might form these like loose groups that, you know, come together over accessing resources and then they kind of like disperse. I know there have been some groups of dogs that have stayed together for longer than, um, you know, kind of the norm. There have been observations in India around dogs that kind of stay together and they do form, they are like, you know, kin or they are related to each other, but that's not something that we tend to see generally speaking. Um, And, you know, the, the, the studies that were done around wolves, you know, back in, you know, the early 1900s and mid 1900s, those, those studies were, they weren't observing wolves in their natural state. They had brought together a bunch of wolves, put them in a, an enclosure and, you know, they're not related. Of course, they're going to fight. Of course, there's going to be access to resource issues. Um, dominance is, has been misappropriated by the dog training world. If you ask a biologist about a wildlife biologist about dominance, there's no like weird, stuff around dominance they're just like yeah. oh yeah dominance but if you throw that word around in the dog training world it has a completely different connotation mm-hmm. so you know there's a lot of the a lot of the words and the concepts that have been taken by dog trainers um from the wildlife biology and from you know wildlife and misconstrued to represent different 
things in the dog training world. So it's really unfortunate um, that that's happened because it has harmed a lot of dogs mm-hmm. um, over the last several, several decades in this with this type of training. And, you know, we also have to remember that we're not wolves. Like yeah. we're not dogs and we're not wolves. So, you know, even that that type of training has, you know, dogs are not thinking like, oh, you're mimicking you know, my ancestor from, you know, thousands of years ago, like that's not what dogs are are thinking. I mean, I'm pretty confident that's not what they're thinking. Um, <laughs> it can't be in their brains, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident that. Um, but yeah, it's just been so misappropriated and so misconstrued that, you know, there's just, there's been a lot of hard training and, and it's really, it's 2024. You know, the studies have shown that this type of, of training does have negative welfare impacts on dogs. It's not good for them. It's just, you know, none of it is good. So it's, it's time to throw it in the trash where it belongs, but, you know, for some reason it's still very pervasive and, you know, we've talked about this on a previous, you know, podcast episode around wolves and how people are very enamored with wolves. And, you know, there's, there's, I think there's something there about how people want to, to be close to wolves but you know in taking this this aspect of like being part of the wolf pack i think is something that's very romantic to people Mm -hmm. and and you know this is this is i think the the detriment of that um unfortunately is is very detrimental yeah it's very detrimental to dogs so yeah yeah. it's also uh, with what i have learned over the years in much less academic related settings but by talking with academics like yourself and being involved in various aspects of dog training in the dog world uh through agility and performance and stuff um you can watch dogs who are being Mm -hmm. walked who are there was someone in one of my old neighborhoods, he had two dogs. They walked in perfect lockstep with him. They never veered for more than a foot from his side. Um, yeah. And they looked so bored on their walks yeah. because yeah. it was, this is what we do. And if we don't do it, we get shocked effectively. We get mm-hmm. yanked on depending on which tool he was using that day. Whereas yeah. I would walk with JJ and it's okay, which way do you want to go? Yeah. If you're pulling, that means you're really interested. It doesn't mean you're being a jerk. It means you're really interested in something. Mm, So I'm going to let you explore that. And she, the second you start making those decisions, the relationship instantly changes because Mm -hmm. they realize, oh, I can communicate with you in some way. Uh, whereas when you're, you're dominating constantly, you're not allowing for that communication to occur. You're just saying, do it or else over and over and over and over. And you can do that with while loving. I think there's a lot of really interesting psychology there that neither of us are capable of getting into professionally, but, um, yeah, yeah, it, it does very much seem to come from that aspect of, I need to be in control of this, whatever it is, which in nature doesn't really happen that way it's mm-hmm. it's a lot of ebb and flow and things sort of crashing up against each other and then either coalescing or moving away again and yeah um i i can see that with behavior and then it just you know now my brain's going on a rampage of wildlife feeding issues because it's the exact same thing that we're going to be talking about with positive reinforcements we're teaching them yeah um but let's get into that so on the the lives of wild dogs accounts Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's a wonderful place. There's links all over for it in this podcast episode, and you can just search for the lives of wild dogs and it'll come up. Um, there, there's a lot of conversation you generate about mm-hmm. what dog trainers might say and about some of the very, I'd say common 
misconceptions. So what an e-caller is, we've already talked a little bit about pack versus social. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, most recently you've got uh, six reasons dogs aren't wolves um, and th- things like that. How has that gone for you? H- have you had a generally positive response? Have you seen people engaging in intelligent conversation and learning or has it been a little bit of disruption? Mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of both. Um, I think it is, you know, I, I am a disruptor. So I that's kind of my aim is to also disrupt. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think it's important for people to, you know, very clearly understand that dogs are not wolves and that, you know, that type of training is detrimental to people or to dogs, to people too, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because it does, it does impact the human dog bond, like you were saying, right? Yeah. Like it is very much, um, I think it, it, that aspect of control is, is very, um, very pervasive. Like, you know, there's a, a very much, a, a this kind of idea that you have to control your dog, that your dog has to comply with what you're saying. And, you know, if you, if they don't, then, you know, they're, I mean, there's very much a narrative around like, well, if you don't, you know, your dog doesn't comply, your dog will like run into the street and and get hit by a car and die. And it's this very like extreme, you know, position that these types of dog trainers take. Um, And, you know, we know that dogs will blow off their e-collar all the time. So, you know, a leash is is your best bet Um, Mm -hmm. and and your dog shouldn't be off leash in the city right like you know that does happen there are accidents do happen and that's not the fault of the owner at all it just you know sometimes it happens but um but yeah i do think there's very much this this attitude of like compliance and and having you know having it's very reinforcing for people to have control over another being and whether that's you know kind of an underlying like feeling that you get or there's something about it. So I I think there is very much this compliance and control that we really need to kind of throw out the window because we do control, you know, our our pet dogs, we control most of their lives, right? Mm -hmm. Like we decide they're going to eat when they're going to go outside, what they're, where they're, when they're going to go for a walk, who they're going to interact with, who they're not going to interact with when they get a treat, when they, you know, there's so much that we control. So for me, it's really about, you know, trying to focus on dog agency and allowing them more control over their lives. Like you were saying, like, let them choose which direction they want to go in and on their walk. And, you know, and I think there's been this, um, you know, I, I know Cesar Milan has really put the like, you know, physical exercise is like the number one. And then I can't remember his second thing. And then affection comes last. And so I think physical exercise has really been, you know, the, you know, a tired dog is a good dog, like all that messaging around, like you need to tire your dog out in order for your dog to be compliant mm-hmm. to, to your requests or to have a better, better behavior. And, you know, there's a lot of studies coming out now that are showing that, you know, it's not just physical exercise, mental stimulation is so important. And, and the wildlife people and the zoo people are way ahead of us on oh, this yeah. in terms of enrichment and, you know, getting, you know, providing that sort of enrichment to animals who are captive, but like, dogs are captive animals, <laughs> you know, they get bored. And that's when you see a lot of these behaviors that come up that might be undesirable to people. Um, so, you know, having that, that allowing for sniffing, allowing for, you know, control over their own lives, choosing directions, like, you know, communicating with you is so important for their, their welfare. And, and it is related to their welfare, you know, agency, having control over your environment, having some control aspect of control over yourself and your needs is very, um, 
linked to to animal welfare. So, you know, that's kind of where I, I focus. And I think I didn't answer your question, but, um, you know, I have a lot of people who to circle back, <laughs> um, a lot of folks have messaged me and been like, you've changed my mind. You know, you've improved the relationship that I've had with my dogs. But, you know, at the same time, I've had to limit my comments to followers only because it is a very, you know, hot topic. It causes a lot of emotions. Um, you know, a lot of people don't want to like get out of that that aspect and i think it comes back to a lot of like what we were talking about where you know wolves are romantic wolves you know if you're saying that you know oh i you know i'm i'm the dog whisperer i you know my dog is like an apex predator (laughs) you know you you have this kind of like you know there's an ego to it right where you're you're saying oh yeah well i've been able to train my high prey drive dog or whatever with and, you know, it, it just, I think it's, you know, punishment is very reinforcing for the punisher. And I think that that goes a long way. And and you have to really take a, a look at how you think about your animals and how you think about your pets and, and how it makes you feel as a person, as a, you know, a dog guardian, like, mm-hmm. you know, is this my ego? Is this the best thing for my, is this really the best thing that I should be doing for my dogs? So, you know, I try to unpack a lot of those, those issues. Um, I think for the most part, you know, people are pretty receptive. They, you know, I've gotten some great comments, um, you know, back and forth, good conversations, but there's definitely been times where it has, you know, brought out a lot of like anger and, you know, um, just, I think people are shocked to hear those things and they don't really, they're not just not ready to kind of yeah. go there so yeah what well, and interestingly that you have a great post on responsible anthropomorphism and i think it's a great little tie in here mm-hmm. so anthropomorphism is generally applying what we would consider human experiences reactions emotions onto yeah. non-human animals just as a, a base explanation and mm-hmm. we are frequently told frequently that it is a negative thing to do particularly when we're talking about wildlife particularly if we're trying to have fact-based conversations well you can't apply emotion to them because either we don't know they don't have it it doesn't matter whichever one of the excuses is used but you make the argument that anthropomorphism is good for animals at times i was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that because it's i think for this audience it is a very it's something we hear about constantly as a negative yeah absolutely does kind of provide a lens toward stronger empathy with animals because you can you can share experiences with animals and we know with dogs that they have you know cognition levels of a you know a toddler up to two Mm -hmm. three years old so they are experiencing similar emotions to us so to be able to know which emotions they're feeling and understanding their body language, you know, there is a way to to create that empathy through kind of anthropomorphizing in a very, you know, responsible way. If you are someone who understands body language and understands, you know, how um, dogs emote, like we can, you know, we can have that empathy and we can have those shared experiences with them. So I think there is something there that it, it doesn't have to be this like, you know, anthropomorphism is bad. Like, (laughs) you know, there there can be ways to have like, to anthropomorphize dogs and and other animals in ways that does provide a lens for us to, you know, have a bit more empathy towards their experiences and think about things from their point of view, right? And think about their lives from their point of view. So I think there's a way to, to you know, use anthropomorphism in a way that is beneficial and not, you know, extend it to, you know, 
what comes to mind is uh, this is like such a random example, but um, they sent a chimpanzee up to space. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And then it was on the cover of like Time magazine when the chimpanzee came back from mm -hmm. space and it had this big smile on its face and people totally mis misinterpreted smiling as a positive thing. Yeah. Whereas in chimpanzee behavior, it's, you know, fear-based, it's conflict, like that's not a positive thing. So that's an example where, you know, we can misinterpret certain body language because we're anthropomorphizing in, you know, a negative way. But I think anthropomorphism, you know, allows you to extend your ability to understand animals that doesn't center humans. So if we're thinking in like an anthrop anthropocentric way where everything is around the human ability, like I would kind of change that to anthropomorphism being more of a way that you can extend your understanding and your empathy towards animals by thinking about them and mm -hmm. their experiences and their point of views. Yeah, I think it's very well said. I remember um, uh, Dr. Mark Beckoff one time expressing to me that we don't know that dogs feel happy the same way we feel happy, but we know they feel mm -hmm. something like happy that we feel. We don't right. know that they feel fear the way we feel fear, but we know yeah. they experience it in the way a dog experience. And it, it's it's a little bit of a mind bender uh, philosophy is, yeah. thing, but it, <laughs> it does make sense in that we can't know 100%. Um, and mm. that's true of most things in life, right? Like yeah. we can test and repeat and test and repeat, but mm. you just need that one dog to sneeze at you instead and the whole study goes out the window. So, um, I, I think it is, it's, we have to make a little bit of a leap of faith to start, mm -hmm. but then it's, yeah. it's the branching out from there. Again, uh, with JJ using that relationship by the end, she could communicate to me what she needed so mm -hmm. simply because we spent yes. so much time together and I got to a point where I just started accepting she is trying to tell me something and mm -hmm. I will do something and see how she reacts. And either she reacts in a positive way or a less than positive way. So mm -hmm. if she stands up and looks at the door, oh, well, do you want to go for a walk? No. Do you want to go see if someone's outside so you can bark at them? Yes. Right? right. So it's yeah. if she she looks at the door, then does she look at her leash or does she keep looking at the door? And that mm -hmm. was the difference. But that's yeah. just me observing it, imagining the possibility that she's trying to tell me something and then deducing from the available information what it likely is and testing, right? And it's, yeah. it, it sounds nerdy, but it, it's how we live life. It's how we experience things. It's just mm -hmm. applying those, those terms and the step-by-step -step process of it to that experience. And I think anyone in a new relationship with a yeah. human even, you need to find out how they react to something. And does your yeah. upset look the same as my upset? You know, exactly. I'm, I'm classically neurodivergent in that I crush everything inside so no one can see it. Um, and <laughs> that makes it difficult sometimes for people to know, right? It's like, yeah, I do have depression and anxiety and uh, a huge amount of social anxiety. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll still get up on stage and be silly in front of a bunch of people and do things like this. But, you know, you wouldn't know that just by watching. It's only through observation over time. And anyway going down a rabbit hole. There, yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and on that, there's a lot going on with uh, the wild lives of dogs. And I, I don't want our conversation to cycle only about my interest in the things you've posted. Um, 
which we could do a couple hours on, I think. I'm sure um, we could. Yeah. yeah. There, there's a few uh, elements that you've been doing here, though, that I think are really worth getting into. Um, and I'm going to start with the, the more recent one, um, and that's the pet pantry. And I yeah. love this. And it's something we're hearing a lot about as a need. But this is one of the few times where I have seen someone go, and here's the solution. So could you, you share a bit about what the, the pet pantry project is, just to keep it nice and uh, uh, peas? I can't think of the word for that now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, kind of stemming from my work in animal shelters and access to veterinary care and access to pet care resources, um, I, you know, my friend and neighbor just and I saw we live in a middle to low income neighborhood and we kind of wanted to help, you know, folks in our neighborhood and help pets in our neighborhood. And we, you know, we're kind of thinking of a way of how to do this. And we thought of about a pet pantry. And so, you know, we know that food insecurity is becoming more prevalent in, you know, for people, especially people who are low income or on a fixed income or retired or on disability. Um, so we knew that, you know, food insecurity is, is growing and therefore, probably pet food insecurity is growing. There's not a lot of stats around this in Canada. There's more in the US, but PetSmart Charities of Canada did a survey back in, I think, 2022. It just, the results were um, published in 2023. And they found that 77% of Canadians would forego their own meals in order to feed their pets. Mm -hmm. um, we also know there's a lot of waste, <laughs> you know, in food in, ge in general, and yep. that would include pet food. So we were able to you know, gather donations. Um, we put a little bit of our own money in at first, but not too much. Um, but yeah, we uh, contacted our community center because they had a bit of a, it, it's not exactly a food bank program, but it's called the Good Food Bag. And they um, basically put together a bag of vegetables and fruit for folks who need it and they sell it at an affordable price. Mm -hmm. So we contacted them and they were super into, you know, having us there at the same time. And we would hand out pet food while people were, you know, getting their good food. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we kind of said, like, we know that there's, you know, this food insecurity that's happening. Clearly you do as well. You know, po probably people who are food insecure are going to be pet food insecure if they have pets. So why don't we set up at the same time and we can kind of take this one health approach to, you know, tackling some food insecurity. And yeah, we started last year, last November, and we've been, you know, at the at the community center almost every week, um, every Tuesday for a couple hours. And we mm -hmm. hand out some pet food and we've really, you know, it's been such a great experience. Um, we've met, you know, a lot of really cool folks and their pets as well. Some people bring their dogs in when they come to get their food. And um, yeah, it's been really amazing. It's been a great, great experience. And, you know, I think it it kind of ties into this access, to, you know, trying to tackle this access to resources and being in your community, like not just focusing on, you know, everyone, right? Like it takes these small steps and building your community and building up your neighborhood and contributing in a way that is really affecting people in a positive way. So and making a making a difference, making a, a direct impact in people's lives has been really amazing. So yeah, yeah absolutely. It's it, it's lovely to see. And again, as you said, the one health approach there, folks, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, we're very overwhelmed by the world around us. I am on a daily basis. Part of my job is to read the news and whoa, it's not going <laughs> great. 
<laughs> things aren't great. I don't know if you picked up yeah. on that, but um, yeah, yeah. So it's you know, folks are they are overwhelmed, and when we start talking about well, how do we improve outcomes for dogs overall in Canada? And so one of the first steps is we want fewer dogs to end up in shelters. I think everyone yeah. can agree to. We want as many dogs to stay in homes as possible. Well, what's one of the one of the top reasons? I know there's a lot of reasons, but one of the top reasons people don't maintain a pet is they can't afford to. I mean, there's there's a yeah. lot of other stuff too, but that is one yeah. of the reasons. So this seems to be a very positive, practical, accessible, affordable step to reducing mm -hmm. negative outcomes for pets across the country. Which I and again, I think the significance of that is very uh, uh, huge, really. And I'm curious if you can talk a bit about you've you've set up a um, an outline, a training program for this, um, for the pet pantry. And if you could tell us a bit I about did, that yeah. and how people can get involved. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, was talking about the pet pantry on my Instagram a little bit, and people, I started noticing people were, you know, asking questions and and you know we're interested in this initiative and um i have a friend in toronto who has a little um free kind of pet pantry set up at her house it's super cute um and i just you know noticed that people were asking questions kind of showing interest so i was like well why don't i create this mini course on how to set up a pet pantry so i developed developed that course um it is available um to purchase it's pretty cheap um mm -hmm. And yeah, I just wanted to also make it accessible to people, yeah. right? So, um, but yeah, so it's uh, basically it outlines, you know, what a pet pantry is, the different models of pet pantries, the pros and cons of of those models. So you can kind of pick and choose what would be a better fit for you. Um, and then it also, you know, goes from setting up the pet pantry to, you know, if you want to work with an organization like a community center or a food bank. Um, the different ways that you can approach that to basically outlining how we, you know, label food, how we bag food, you know, handing out food, how do you get donations. Um, I've also included some templates that people can download as well. So advertising templates, templates, Instagram templates that they could download and just, you know, advertise with that. I have a data collection one as well and an impact report template and an email template as well that people can use to email organizations, um, you know, to basically see if they, they're interested. So it's a pretty, um, you know, step-by-step -step, simple, you know, it makes it kind of easy to understand how to set a pet pantry up. And, you know, I've really relied on my experience, but also the experience that I've gained through, you know, just being in, involved in access to pet care for the last few years. And I'm part of a working group, a pet pet food pantry working group as well. So I've learned a lot from them. So yeah, I just kind of culminated all that knowledge and, and developed a course. And it's, you know, something that I hope people can take and, and implement in their own communities, because it really is a, a an achievable way to make an impact in the in your community. And I think that's what people are really looking for. So yeah, I think it's great. And I, I agree. I hope people uh, really d take it up as an opportunity. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of small pantry projects overall here in uh, East Hamilton. Uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of need. And yeah. we do see, you know, here and there, it's, oh, someone's, they replaced their little library with a little, you know, can cupboard. Um, yes. Because little yeah. library is cute and helpful for a community. Little can cupboard can go a lot farther than a cute little library can. Uh, and yeah. that's not slagging little libraries. Uh, I quite enjoy them as well. 
Um, now to, to wrap up, I'm, I, I think a great place to do this or a great way to do this is for me to simply ask you, what are the things people can do sort of just starting out today to try and improve the lives of their dogs, improve the lives of dogs in their community. Like I, for one, when I see someone yank on a dog, I have, and I avoid doing this, but I have uh, uh, spoken to the person about the aggressive tendencies it reinforces and so on. But I don't think I'm a great communicator in that moment, and I'm not sure the message is being well received. So I often feel like I'm not helping. And I'm wondering, you know, for others maybe in that way, how can we help? And um, if there's perhaps something like one specific message you get a lot to or anything like that that you'd like to address. Yeah, I think um, I think there's a lot of misinformation and I think it's really hard for people to navigate that. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I would tell people is really listen to your gut, right? Like that's what that's what happened to me. I got pulled into, you know, uh, different training techniques that I just wasn't comfortable with and it just didn't resonate with me. It wasn't the type of training I wanted to do with my dog. It wasn't the type of relationship I wanted with my dog. And it was really about like listening to my gut feeling. So like, you know, if, if someone is working with a trainer and, you know, they feel there's something, something there that tells you this doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. My dog doesn't really like this, or I don't really like this, then listen to that gut feeling because it, it might just make, you know, a huge difference for the, the, the way that you train and the way that, you know, your dog lives out the rest of their life, because, you know, it is, they have short lives compared to us. Right. So, I mean, I just want my dog to just have as much control and choice and agency, you know, of, over their own lives that, you know, we don't give that very much to dogs. And that's something that I've really learned by watching free roaming dogs, right? Mm -hmm. It's, they have so much control over their lives. They have so much agency. And I think we can learn a lot from, you know, those dogs into how we can, you know, improve the lives of, of our, our pet dogs and our, our, you know, the dogs that live in our houses with us and share our lives with us. We don't, no one gets a dog, a companion really to then put a shock collar on their dog. Right. Yeah. Like most people don't, and they, they don't want to have an antagonistic, you know, relationship or a relationship of conflict with their dog. Like you, people get dogs because they want a companion. They want, you know, to share their lives with an, with another animal. And um, I think that, you know, certain training techniques can really be detrimental to that relationship. And I think that people just really need to, to think critically, you know, seek out different resources, um, different ways of training and, you know, not blame themselves if they've, you know, worked with a trainer because the, 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 the dog training industry is unregulated. Anyone can wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to be a dog trainer today and, you know, not have any education, not need any certifications. You know, there's no licensing, there's nothing. It's just whoever wants to be a dog trainer can start a business. And I think that's a huge, a huge problem in our industry is that there is no regulation and, and it really confuses, you know, dog, dog owners and, and dog guardians in, in that way. So I think it really is about trying to, you know, navigate that in a way that isn't, um, yeah, isn't, it's hard. It is really hard, but, you know, trying to find, you know, resources from people who have credentials, people mm. who, you know, are looking toward the science and the peer reviewed literature and the scholarship and, and, you know, using that as a way to 
train dogs in the best, you know, within the best practices and the most modern techniques. And I mean, just stop watching Caesar Milan. <laughs> <laughs> just, just if he gets on TV, and I, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, Caesar. Like, I know, I'm sure he really loves dogs. I'm sure there's something there. You know, he clearly wants, you know, what's best, but it's just been such a detriment to, you know, the dog training industry. And it's just really, really created some really, you know, really, I think it's just created like, con like conf conflict, really yeah. relationships of conflict with your dog and relationships of like hierarchy. And, you know, that isn't just, isn't there. It's just yeah. not something that we, we really see in dogs on a, you know, general basis. There might be some, you know, there's always some dogs that will form these, you know, there might be some pack kind of structures or, but it's really not the, that's not yeah. the norm. And that's, that's just not, like I said, we're not dogs, we're not wolves, we're not able to communicate in the same way that they can communicate with each other. And we shouldn't be trying, we should be trying to find a way to meet in the middle. And that's, I think, where really like the clicker training and the positive reinforcement training is, is what that's what they're doing. They're really, yeah really meeting dogs where they are and finding ways to communicate with dogs that's not rooted in in control and conflict and you know aggression and um hierarchy and dominance so yeah that's what i would say that was pretty long-winded but you know <laughs> it's right though it's great <laughs> yeah yeah to learn more about dr valley fraser salin and her work check out at the lives of wild dogs on instagram Links are available in the show notes in your podcast player or at DefenderRadio.com. I want to thank Valley for joining us and all of you for listening. Remember to follow the Fur Bears on social media for updates on the podcast and our campaigns. Find us by searching for The Fur Bearers or use the links in this week's show notes. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and The Fur Bears, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.